Good evening. Thank you all for coming tonight. My name is Ildiko Kish. Frank and I have been married for a little over 50 years. God has blessed us with two lovely daughters and three lovely grandchildren. I am a refugee from Hungary. I feel very blessed to share with you a story, truly miraculous journey, a story of tremendous faith, hope, and love. I can hardly believe I was a part of. But first, allow me to go back and tell you a little bit about my country. Founded in 896, Hungary was a peaceful, multi-ethnic kingdom. Her first crowned king was Stephen. He was summoned to Rome by Pope Sylvester II. He was and baptized with his whole household and crowned on December 25th in the year 1000. Under his rule, Hungary became a Christian nation. He was canonized by Pope, ben Pope Gregory VII in 1083, and hence became known as Saint Stephen, first king of Hungary. For over 1100 years, Hungary's borders were virtually unchanged, until 1916, when Romania signed a secret treaty with the United Kingdom, France, Italy, and Russia, which granted the part of Hungary known as Transylvania to Romania. This treaty caused Hungary an unprecedented loss of territory, half of her total population, the loss of all her seaports, up to 90% of her vast natural resources, industry, railway, and other infrastructure was devastating. More treaties followed, this time between the US, Russia, Britain, and France, determining Hungary's borders. Millions of Hungarians saw boundaries arbitrarily redrawn around them. Affected population lost the right to choose under whose sovereignty they would live. Individual and minority rights of ethnic Hungarians were violated, especially in Romania. Those forced to move into the newly defined borders of Hungary lost their possessions, their homes, land, businesses, and so forth. My parents were from Transylvania, now part of Romania. In 1942, to maintain their Hungarian identity, they moved across the border into the newly defined Hungary, to the city of Debrecen. My sister and I were born there. In 1945, the Russian occupation began. The Kremlin-backed Hungarian Working People's Party became the country's sole governing body. Steadily, they drove the nation into economic collapse. They were focused not on the welfare of the Hungarian people, but rather on Stalin's brutal rule over the Eastern Bloc. Hungarian flags were desecrated. 
the national emblem was removed and replaced by a communist symbol. Everywhere, Russian flags were displayed side by side with new Hungarian designed, new communist designed Hungarian flags. In 1949, we moved to Balaton Almadi to join my mother's family who had settled there after the war. This little town of only 8,500 inhabitants was a popular resort town near the northeast corner of Lake Balaton. An influx of vacationers would double the population in the summer months. Our little family moved into the servants' quarters of an old villa, just one room and a kitchen. Though we did have electricity, there was no indoor plumbing, so my father built us an outhouse. As you can imagine, it was tight, with the four of us sharing two beds in the main room. And over the next six years, God saw fit to send three more children, bringing the family to a total of seven in one room. At that time, my father worked days and my mother worked nights. So in the evenings, my father would read to us. We did not have radio or TV, so he would entertain us with historical novels, lives of the saints, fairy tales, mysteries, and stories about Jesus when he was a little boy, our favorites. In 1950, the communists closed convents, monasteries, seminaries, Catholic schools. Unless their families could take them in, many, many religious were left homeless and on the streets. Religion was all but forbidden. Some parishes were allowed to continue functioning. In our own town, there was a sister taken in by the parish who assisted the pastor with religious education, attended the sick and dying, and performed household duties. The communists sought to control every aspect of the people's lives. If there was a resource that was beneficial to them, or served to promote their agenda, they seized it. This included private homes, family farms, local businesses. Anything privatized became government-run. Private ownership ceased. Going even further, they attempted to dominate and control the people's minds demanding that all books, magazines, newspapers, published before 1950 be turned over to local officials in local correction agencies. My father worked at a paper factory that destroyed collected material. They conducted house-to-house -house searches to confiscate anything they wanted. In an act of silent rebellion, some managed to bury their prized possessions, historical documents, biographies, novels, scriptures, and other valuable literature. However, many were 
unsuccessful. They were caught and paid for their transgressions with their lives. Fear, hatred, mistrust dominated the atmosphere. Family members turned against each other. People lost their lives for simply telling a political joke. The faithful were imprisoned, tortured, executed. The communist government trained a group of men that they called peace priests. In actuality, these men were spies placed among an unsuspecting flock. People were disappearing and no one knew why. When I entered the first grade in 1949, priests were still allowed to teach religion after school in the school building, but parents who wanted their children to attend these classes were required to send in a written request as well as appear before a government tribunal for interrogation. In 1950, they decreed that religious education on school property was forbidden. It could be conducted on church property only. Even so, they continued to intimidate families by demanding they write and appear to plead their case before a communist forum. My parents faithfully endured this process year after year. With more and more freedoms being stripped from the people, the church recommended that children take the sacraments early and all at once. My sister was just five years old when she received all three sacraments, first confession, first communion, and confirmation. These were dangerous times to be outwardly expressing and practicing one's faith. Even so, as a family, we attended Mass regularly on Sundays and Holy Days and participated in religious activities. My parents did not hide their faith. They put their trust in God and held fast to what they knew was true. At times, they were threatened, but never harmed. My parents would often share of the story of how in 1956, once again, appearing before one of these communist tribunals, my father refused to back down. He was adamant about the necessity, the importance of us children receiving a good religious education. My father frustrated one of the panelists so much that he began pounding his fist on the table and angrily shouted, why do you want to raise your children to be enemies of the state? He could clearly be heard by other parents waiting their turn. They were frightened for my father, thinking surely he would be arrested and taken away. My father, equally impassioned, banged his fist on the table and responded that Christ teaches us to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. After my parents were allowed to leave, the team's leader shook hands with my father and said, 
I wish you were with us instead of against us. On the morning of October 23, 1956, our lives changed forever. On our way to school, students who had radios at home were telling us that they had heard reports that fascists had attacked Budapest, the capital city of Hungary. We were shocked and didn't know what to make of any of these stories. By the time we got to school, there was chaos. Even the teachers were alarmed and fearful. Students were dismissed early and the school was closed. We hurried home. Neighbors were gathering around radios to hear the latest. First reports indicated that what we heard was true. Budapest was under attack. Excuse me. Over the next few days, a better picture of what had actually taken place began to be revealed. A group of unarmed students gathered peacefully to demonstrate on a university campus. As their numbers grew, the group spilled out into the streets of Budapest, marching behind a banner carried by 12 young women. They cried out for democratization and basic human rights. People from all walks of life joined them. Though still peaceful, the demonstration grew larger and larger. They made their way to the national radio station. There, they were met by communist police, whose first course of action was to gun down the 12 young women holding the banner, murdering them right there in the street. People ran for cover as more gunshots rang out and tear gas was thrown into the crowd. This began a bloody revolution. Demonstrators reorganized themselves with the help of local police and military sympathizers, both Hungarian and even some Russian. Martial law was declared and a call for more Russian troops was issued. Riots and street fighting broke out. Blood flowed in the streets. Bodies lay everywhere. During the night, Soviet tanks rolled in, mowing down the people. Fighter jets, jets assaulted the people from the air. They bombed schools, hospitals, libraries, museums. Radio Free Europe and the Voice of America indicated help was on its way and encouraged the Hungarians to keep fighting. And they did. The Soviets pulled back. A new free multi-party government was formed almost overnight. Hope filled the air. Opposition troops were pushed out of Budapest. The freedom fighters celebrated a short-lived victory. The new authorities released many prisoners, especially those accused 
of political crimes, like our beloved Cardinal Joseph Mincenti. Appointed Cardinal and Primate of Hungary in 1945, Pope Pius XII placed the Beretta on Mincenti's head and said, among the 32, you will be the first to suffer the martyrdom whose symbol this red color is. Cardinal Mincenti spoke out publicly in defense of the church and his people until his arrest in 1948, charged with conspiracy and espionage. He was imprisoned, tortured, brainwashed by the secret police, convicted in a mockery of a trial, and condemned to life in prison. He spent eight years in solitary confinement. Upon his release, he was given asylum at the American Embassy in Budapest, where he wrote his memoirs. I have a copy right there. Leaders of the new young Hungarian Republic tried desperately to negotiate Soviet troop withdrawals from all of Hungary. They sent a delegation to the UN asking that Hungary be recognized as and declared independent. They begged for help from the West. The fighting was put on hold for three days and the Soviets invited the new Hungarian prime minister and the general of the freedom fight to Transylvania with promises of negotiating peace. However, when, when they arrived, both men were arrested and executed. No help came from the West and the UN failed to respond. On November 4th, the Soviets redoubled their attack on Hungary. The newly appointed Hungarian state minister pled over the radio saying, I appeal to the great powers of the world for a wise and courageous decision in the interest of my enslaved nation and the liberty of all Eastern European nations. God, preserve Hungary. In that moment, he was silenced and never heard from again. With the Soviets now fully back in power, this day marked the end of Hungary's valiant fight for freedom. But the resistance persisted. Thousands died. Many more were jailed, and over 200,000 were forced to flee. The borders were closed. No one was allowed to leave the country. Tension was at an all-time high. The names of all known freedom fighters and anyone who defended or supported their efforts were placed on a list. The people lived in constant fear of imprisonment, torture, or execution. 21 days later, 
on November 25th, my father suddenly and very urgently felt divinely inspired to gather us up and move the family out of the country and to the West. I wish now that I had asked him to talk more about this while he was alive. Reflecting on that day, I always think of how Saint Joseph was instructed in a dream to rise up and take his family to Egypt. My father, sternly and matter-of-factly, told my mother to gather the children ready because we are leaving in the morning. As you might expect, this news shocked and frightened my mother. Her response was, are you crazy? You want to try to escape now when they have closed and heavily armed the borders? A month ago, maybe, when the borders were still open. But now, with five little children, how can you expect us to attempt such a thing? My father's response was, we must trust in the Lord, trust in God, fear not, we are in God's hands. That night, we walked over to my grandparents' home to say goodbye. The next morning, we got up very early. I remembered it was bitter cold and there was lots of snow on the ground. We were bundled up, layered in practically all the clothes we had. My mother had packed some food for the road and we were off. My father said we shouldn't get on the train in our own city. So we walked to the city before hours to catch the train, arriving about 4 a.m. I was 13, my sister 11, a brother seven, a brother four, and a little sister just 21 months old. Dad and I took turns carrying the baby. My mother and I, my mother carried the food basket and cloth diapers. Mm -hmm. Prior to boarding, Dad instructed us that if anyone asked us where we were going, we were to just say that we were going to visit family. With much trepidation, we boarded the train. As we pulled into the first stop, our city station, one of my teachers got on and stood there right next to me. Lo and behold, he asked, where are you going? I answered, to visit family. He gave a half smile and said nothing else. When we got to Vesprim, the first large city, my father studied a map posted on the wall there and began formulating a plan. We need to end up at the western border by Austria, but there was no direct rail service. We had no choice but to take it one step at a time and trust that my dad knew what he was doing. Every station we pulled into was full of armed, mostly Russian soldiers, 
who spoke little or no Hungarian. It was very important that we not draw any attention to ourselves or make these men suspicious or angry for any reason. My parents warned us not to make a fuss, start an argument, or even speak loudly. Now, that's a tall order for five scared, active little children. But by some miracle of miracles, all five of us were very well behaved. There was no whining or crying. We spoke softly and only when necessary. Some might say that that was the greatest miracle of this story. <laughs> While looking at the map, my dad met a young couple who also looked to escape to the West. After they spoke briefly, he introduced a couple to my mother. She was understandably upset, saying to my father, you don't know these people. We can't just trust them and share our plans with them. What if they are spies? They could hand us over. My father's response was the same as earlier. We must place our trust in God. Fear not, we are in his hands. They, in fact, were a lovely couple who had left their children in Budapest with the grandparents, which was a huge risk. They joined us, bringing our group to nine. We soon boarded another train, slowly making our way toward the western border. At the Papa station, my father again took some time to review the map for our best options. There he met three young men who had tried to escape before, but were caught and imprisoned. They were later released from jail due to overcrowding. My father also invited them to join our group, bringing us to 12. I am sure you can imagine my mother's reaction to this addition. As we made our way closer to the border, we met a couple with two small boys. These little boys were having a hard time, constantly crying and screaming. Their parents were worn out. They too joined us, and now we were 16. By nightfall, we reached an ancient Hungarian city close to the border, but not yet close enough. There, my father approached the station master and asked about the next train to Sopron, a city right on the border. This was a huge gamble. Most positions of status, such as station masters, were filled by loyal Communist Party members. Drawing any attention to ourselves would be perilous. It's hard to imagine what gave my dad the courage to speak to him. The only thing I can attribute it to 
is that small inner voice that urged him onward. The next train was leaving soon and did not have enough space to hold the passengers already waiting on the platform, much less another 16. So the station master quietly and discreetly sneaked us around to an open car and allowed us to board early. All 16 of us were able to comfortably sit together. A short-lived sense of relief came over the group. We had all made it safely this far, but there was no time to let our guard down. The adults began to ask, is this too good to be true? Will the station master turn us in now? Could there be secret police waiting for us at the next stop? My father reassured everyone with the same mantra, be at peace, fear not, we are in God's hands. As passengers boarded from the platform, the train filled to the brim. People were hanging from the steps. Some courageous souls even climbed up on the roof. At the next stop, I saw a young woman I will never forget. She was strikingly beautiful with long, dark hair. My father got up and offered her his seat. How she managed to push her way through the crowd and back onto the train where we were sitting, I will never know. She appeared as of out of nowhere. In whispers, many people aboard the train were discussing routes to freedom. A kind farmer approached my parents and offered to lead our group to Austria through some swampland that was now frozen over. As the adults seriously contemplated his generosity, the stunning Mr. Lady spoke softly to my mother. It is very late, and these beautiful children are tired and hungry. Come home with me for the night. She thought it would be a mistake for us to cross the marsh in the dark. She explained that she lived across the street from the Chopron station. We could have something to eat, sleep there, and continue our journey in daylight. She even had a friend who could drive us to the border in the morning. My father agreed. There was a brief discussion much like before, about whether or not we could trust this stranger. My father continued reassuring everyone, our trust is in the Lord, fear not. And so we took this beautiful woman up on her offer. As we approached the Chopron station, the lady asked us not to all cross the street at once but to go in very small groups so as not to attract attention. She lived in a very old, very large apartment building. She led the way and we followed in tiny clumps. My mother was concerned about separating the family for any length of time. 
with all her stories of families who got separated on the border while trying to cross. Some of their members were shot on, at the border, others captured, imprisoned. Despite my mother's fears, we all complied with our host's wishes, my family splitting into two groups. Once safely inside, we were able to breathe a small sigh of relief. Her home was a sweet little apartment, and she was a gracious host. Her first order of business was hot chocolate and snacks for the children, then making a bed for them to sleep. She served tea and sandwiches to the adults who stayed up sitting around the table. As I was 13, I was allowed to stay up and sit with them. Sometime after midnight, her husband came home. Who are all these people, he asked. One by one, we introduced ourselves as he joined us at table. Like his wife, he was very kind and courteous, happy to help someone in need. She was just bringing in a tray of food when he asked, and honey, what are you doing home? This startled her. She dropped the tray and looked at him for a second. I don't know, she said. We scrambled to pick up the food, dropped food she had prepared as she sat down for a moment to think. She recalled saying goodbye to her husband in the morning and leaving with their two little children. They were headed to her parents' home in the country. He was going to join them in a couple of days. It was customary at that time to butcher a pig before Christmas and prepare all the meats making ham, sausages, bacon, and so forth. Most of it would be smoked for to, to be consumed later, but some was left fresh, cooked the same day, and shared with the hungry workers. Though some people had ice boxes, we didn't have refrigerators in those days. She had been busy working all afternoon and late into the evening cleaning intestines to be used for sausage casings when she suddenly felt the need to go home immediately. She took off her apron, handed it to her mother, and asked, please take care of the children. She had to leave for home right then and there. She ran to make that train. It was as if she just now realized how strange it all sounded as she relayed the story to us and to her husband. We all knew without a doubt why she was urged to run back and board that train. I got goosebumps that night listening to her tell the story. And to this day, I get goosebumps every time I share it. This sweet lady was truly an angel. I don't know if I ever knew her name. If I did, I can't recall it now. 
The adults didn't get any real sleep that night. There was much too much to talk about. Early the next morning, she called for two taxis, drivers she knew, who, could, who were willing to take people to the border. Each car could hold a maximum of four passengers. We waited to be the last group to go, as my mother insisted again that we make every effort to stay together. The seven of us divided ourselves into two cars, and the drivers agreed to travel together as closely as possible without arousing suspicion. We were the last to get to the border. The area is a very mountainous region. And the rest of the group was there waiting for us at the bottom of a hill. I remember a little house, not sure exactly what it was, a guardhouse maybe. There was a man there who seemed to be in charge. When we arrived, he told us there was no time to waste, that we must go now. We started climbing the hill. About halfway up or so, we could see standing at the crest a line of armed soldiers. They seemed very young, very no-nonsense, their guns pointed directly at us. We all stopped in our tracks, frightened. We held our breath. One of the young men addressed us in Hungarian, asking, and where do you think you're going? There was silence until my mother spoke up, casually saying, we just want to climb this hill. The young, that's exact, the young men chuckled. They, <clears throat> and ran down to help us up the hill. They led us to the border crossing where we could see both the Hungarian and the Austrian flags flying high. They showed us a worn path and advised that we very quickly continue down it. In an hour, there would be a changing of the guards. Russian soldiers would be relieving them. They further informed us that they would fire some shots into the air, but do not be scared or look back. Just stay on the path and keep moving forward. They warned us not to make a sound. Just keep walking until we reach a village. When we did indeed hear them fire their guns, it was terrifying. I wanted to look back. I think we all did, but we didn't dare. For several hours, we walked down the snow-covered hill in total silence. The two little boys, who were always crying and making a fuss, fell almost immediately asleep. They slept the whole way in their parents' arms. Finally, we came to, the, we came to a little village. My first memory of it 
is the white church steeple in the distance, much like the Christmas cards you see. Soon after, all the, soon after, all the little houses came into view, and the two little boys, as if they could feel the mood of our group shift, woke up on cue and began to scream. <laughs> they made lots of noise all the way into town. Thinking of this moment always reminds me of Exodus chapter 23, verses 20 and 21. See, I am sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and bring you to the place I prepared. Be attentive to him and heed his voice. Once there, we were met by many friendly faces. Some of them were members of the Red Cross, I think. They took us to an empty schoolhouse. Everyone was tired and hungry. We were served hot chocolate and spam with American cheese sandwiches. They were so delicious. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. This was my first time tasting spam and cheese. We had never been able to afford it. Soon after, a bus arrived that transported all of us to another town. We arrived late at night. There we, we, there we were ushered into a large auditorium and greeted by an equally friendly group of people. How lucky we were. Not all refugees are welcomed with such kindness and compassion. They came with food, clothing, chocolate, chocolate, and more chocolate. <laughs> Women came with stacks of cloth diapers. One of the things my mother was the most grateful for as we have run out of them. Strangers stepped up stepped forward indicating how many people they could house for the night. They could be heard saying, I can take one, I can take four. No one called out for seven. <laughs> we were the last family left in need of shelter. We waited patiently. They assured us that it would all work out. A little while later, another angel arrived. She could take all seven of us. She ran a summer vacation resort. There was no heat or running water, but she had feather beds and hot water bottles. We climbed into bed that night with a grateful heart and a huge sense of relief. We never slept so well. The next morning, we were awakened by more helpers bearing gifts food, warm clothing, and stacks of cloth diapers. We were truly treated like royalty. After breakfast, we all gathered again back at the auditorium where a bus was waiting to transport us to Vienna. Excuse me. In Vienna, 
There was a large refugee camp located on an American military base. Here, our little group of 16 were separated. We never saw each other again. We spent a few days there gathering all our paperwork in order. Catholic Charities was hard at work on the base. Their first priority was to place families of all faiths and creeds with children under 12 years of age in more family-friendly environments. Refugee camps were really no place for young children. Our family was taken to Romsau, a ski village in Austria, where Catholic Charities rented a lodge to house families. We were very comfortable there while we waited to gain entrance into the United States. My parents even made several lasting friendships. My mother wasted no time to con in contacting family and friends left behind to inform them we had all made it safely to Austria. She sent tender letters and care packages. She put special thought into the boxes of goodies she sent to thank our angel in Chopron, who had helped us all make it to the border. Among other fun things, my mother included chocolate and a baby outfit that she had admired while we were there with them, something my baby sister had worn that was perfect for one of her little ones. After a few exchanges, the lady wrote back asking us not to contact them again as their lives were now in danger. It was with a heavy heart that my mother stopped writing to her. The U.S. immigration quota had been met by this time. So only people who could be sponsored by a friend or a family member were allowed in. It just so happened that my mother, sister, and family were living in Yonkers, New York. They made several trips to the U.S. Embassy in New York City and arranged for our admittance. And we did our part through the American Embassy in Vienna. Then we waited, an unusually long wait, only to find out that another family had stolen our paperwork and used it to enter the U.S. This was a disappointing setback. But my dear aunt and uncle worked diligently to set the record straight and even get our case fast-tracked. In February, we were given the green light and we were USA-bound. We traveled from Romsau, Austria to Bremenhaven, Germany. There, we boarded the USS General M. Walker, a troop carrier used during World War II. We sailed across the Atlantic in a Category 4 hurricane. The ship was tossed about by the waves like a matchbox. At times terrifying, at times fun. It was quite an adventure. 
We all suffered some seasickness, but my poor mother was bedridden the whole time. My husband once suggested we take a cruise. <laughs> my response was, no way. <laughs> Never again. I've had my share of cruises. We spent 10 days at sea, pulling into New York Harbor on February 15th in 1957. New York dock workers were on strike at that time, so we deboarded the ship on the New Jersey side. My mother's family was there waiting for us. It was a happy, happy reunion. From there, we went to Camp Kilmer in New Jersey to complete our processing. And the next day, we were allowed to go home with my aunt and uncle. They had taken great care to prepare a special room for us in all Hungarian decor. It was very touching. The next day, Monday, we were taken to Sacred Heart Catholic School and enrolled. They offered us gently used uniforms, which we gratefully accepted and asked if we'd like to stay and observe for the rest of the day. I emphatically said no. The idea of starting all over in a new school, in a new country, where I didn't speak the language was overwhelming, to say the least. Tuesday was our official first day at school. My cousin, a sixth grader, walked us in introduced us and showed us around. My teacher's name was Sister Amanda from the Order of the Sisters of St. Agnes. Their mother house was in Wisconsin. The sisters taught in the grade school and the Franciscan friars taught in the high school. My parents were so pleased. Their dream of a Catholic education for us was coming true. For the rest of the school year, from February to June, we focused mainly on learning how to read, write, and speak English. This was a daunting task. We were basically thrown in the deep and into the deep end and had to learn to swim fast. There were no tutors or special classes that we could attend. We went to class with all the other students and had to pick up what we could, bit by bit. I worked very hard and was never prouder than when I finally made the honor roll in my senior year of high school. Now in Hungary, we learned always to acknowledge the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in the tabernacle. When passing a church, we would stop in to pray for a few minutes. And if we could not actually go inside, then we would at least bow our head and make the sign of the cross. This became second nature to me, something I always did. One day, on such a visit, an older lady approached me in church and gave me a magazine to read. She said, I think you should have this. I thanked her 
and tucked it away to read later. The magazine told the story of Our Lady's apparitions in Fatima. I never heard anything about it. It completely captured me. I could not put the magazine down until I read every page. I shared it with my dad. In the back of the magazine, we found the name of a priest from St. Anthony's Mission Church in the Brooklyn or the Bronx, I can't remember which. He was the, he was the first priest from the US to make a pilgrimage to Fatima. He had actually been there to witness the miracle of the sun on October 13, 1917. The magazine advertised a slide presentation he would be giving on Saturday that week. My father and I went. We were so inspired by what we saw and learned that from that day forward, our family prayed the rosary every night together. In fact, my father prayed the rosary every day till the day he died. I dreamed of visiting Fatima. Some days all I could think about. I told my parents, whatever it took, I would make my dream a reality, even if I had to stop the boat to come home. Then, in 1964, Padre Condor, postulator for the cause of beatification for the two young visionaries of Fatima, Francisco and Jacinta Morto, came to the U.S. to spread Our Lady's message. We went to all his presentations and my parents invited him over for a meal on several occasions. I peppered him with questions, so many questions. I could not get enough hearing about Our Lady and the children of Fatima. Before returning to Portugal, Padre Condor asked my parents if they would give their permission for me to go to Fatima and to work in the office for the cause of the beatification of the two young visionaries. I was overjoyed. I could hardly believe my ears. My parents agreed. In March of 1965, I flew from New York to Lisbon. Padre Condor was there to meet me and helped me get settled into my new, albeit temporary, home in Fatima. In the office, I worked with five other ladies, three German, one Hungarian, and one Portuguese. My stay in Fatima is also a wonderful story, but one for another day. I believe that God carried us in the palm of his hands from Balaton Almadi to Chopron to Austria and to the United States of America. I believe that my father's tremendous faith and trust in God saw us through and brought us to freedom. In Exodus 19, verse 4, we read, You have seen for yourself how I bore you up on eagle wings and brought you here to myself. 
There are many tragic stories and accounts of refugees who fled. Many never made it to the border. Many lost their lives on or near the border. Many were captured, imprisoned, executed. You may have read about them in magazines, newspapers, in books. And there are stories like ours, thousands of beautiful stories of survival. We are not alone. We must share all these stories. I felt compelled to share my story with you tonight in a spirit of gratitude for the greater honor and glory of God who in his divine mercy guides our lives.